Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed, and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. It follows on from Moses telling the Israelites that all these, um, the blessings and everything that have come to the Israelites in the past, for them not to be self-righteous about it and think that it came from them, or that they, they earned it all, but that it was the grace of God who actually did it all for them. So it's just a reminder to them. Um, the reading comes from Deuteronomy 9, 7 to 29. And it's headed up the golden calf. I remember this and never forget how you aroused the anger of the Lord, your God, in the wilderness. From the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, you have been rebellious against the Lord. At Horeb, you aroused the Lord's wrath so that he was angry enough to destroy you. When I went up on the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord had made with you. I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I ate no bread and drank no water. The Lord gave me two stone tablets inscribed with the finger of God. On them were all the commandments the Lord proclaimed to you on the mountain, out of the fire on the day of the assembly. At the end of 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord told me, Go down from here at once, because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have turned away quickly from what I commanded and have made an idol for themselves. And the Lord said to me, I have seen this people and they are stiff-necked people indeed. Let me alone so that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make you into a nation stronger and more numerous than they. So I turned and went down from the mountain while it was ablaze with fire. And the two tablets of the covenant were in my hands. When I looked, I saw that you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made for yourselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took the two tablets and threw them out of my hands, breaking them to pieces before your eyes. Then once again I fell prostrate before the Lord for forty days and forty nights. I ate no bread and drank no water. Because of all the sin you had committed, doing what was evil in the Lord's sight, and so arousing his anger, I feared the anger and wrath of the Lord, for he was angry enough with you to destroy you. But again the Lord listened to me, and the Lord was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him. But at that time I prayed for Aaron too. Also, I took the sinful thing of yours, the calf you had made, and burned it in the fire. Then I crushed it and ground it to powder, as fine as dust and threw the dust into a stream that flowed down to the mountain. You also made the Lord angry at Taberah and Nessa, and at Kilbroth and Hatarava. And when the Lord sent you out from Kadesh Barnea, 
he said, Go up and take possession of the land I have given you. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You did not trust him or obey him. You have been rebellious against the Lord ever since I have known you. I lay prostrate before the Lord those forty days and forty nights, because the Lord had said he would destroy you. I prayed to the Lord and said, Sovereign Lord, do not destroy your people, your own inheritance, that you redeemed your great power and brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Overlook the stubbornness of this people, their wickedness and their sin. Otherwise, the country from which you brought us will say, because the Lord was not able to take him, take them into the land he had promised, he entered them, he brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. But they are your people, your inheritance, that you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. And then in Deuteronomy 7, uh, 10, <clears throat> verses 7, oh, I'm sorry, 12, <clears throat> to 21. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's command and decrees that I, may, that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God, to the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is the one you praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your ancestors who went down into Egypt were 70 in all. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. All right, will you pray with me? Our Father, we uh, come before you this morning uh, wanting to hear from your word, uh, but we don't want it to come in word only, uh, but in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And so, Lord Jesus, I ask that you would have your hand upon my words and our hearts that we might hear and believe. Please turn our hearts to you by grace. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you this morning. You're going through a series in the book of Deuteronomy looking at the Ten Commandments, the structure of the Ten Commandments. Last week you looked at what it means to love the Lord your God only, what it is to have a monotheistic faith, 
have him and no other. And today we look at what it means to not have idols, not make substitutes for God from our text. And so I want uh, you with me to do something, um, to come into a doctor's surgery room today. We're going to step into the surgery room and first, as a good doctor will do, they'll give you the bad news first. But they're going to follow it up very quickly with the good news. And then you're going to step out of the surgery and we're going to look at how faith in Jesus actually transforms our lives. Okay, so let's step into the surgery. I'm going to give you the bad news first. I'm preparing you for it so you know. Now, the bad news, and it really comes off the bat uh, from our text today, Deuteronomy 9 and verse 7, it says, Remember this and never forget how you provoked the Lord the Lord, your God, to anger in the desert. Remember and never forget. So those words should be highlighted for us as we're reading this. This is Moses' sermon to the people of Israel. It's great preaching on someone else's sermon because it's supposed to be preached. It's supposed to be received by us as God's word to us today. And it says, remember and do not forget. Remember and do not forget that we as human beings tend to make idols or substitutes for God in our hearts. The Bible talks a lot about idolatry. We tend to think about idolatry as you might go to a different, more traditional culture country where they'll set up little figurines of, uh, you know, which will represent various gods. They'll be carved out of wood or stone or in particular wealthy places, gold or something like that or silver. But actually, the Bible reveals later on as we progress through, particularly into the New Testament, that idols are things of the heart. They're things that we make substitutes for God of. And in our text, we get a good idea of what that is. Our text takes us back into a time which Moses, as he's preaching uh, through this Deuteronomic text, takes us back to Exodus 32, uh, where Israel set up a golden calf. So picture this. Israel is uh, in, in the presence of God's holy mountain. There's fire on the mountain, which is revealing the presence of God there. There's smoke on the mountain. Moses has gone up. He's meeting with God. Israel knows this. And yet 40 days have gone by. And they start to get a bit nervous. What's happened to Moses? What's happened to our leadership? And so they go to Aaron, poor Aaron. He tends to get um, convinced by people. He's a sucker to peer pressure. And he goes, they, they go, what's happened to him? And he says, I'll, I'll just make you an idol. I'll make you something physical that will represent the invisible God. I'll make you something physical that can represent the invisible God. And so he gets all their jewellery together throws it into the furnace, pours out and carves a calf, a golden calf, which is actually what the other nations that they were around used to worship. Very quickly, their lives descend into further sin. But as they uh, look at this golden calf, the Aaron, who's supposed to be the high priest of Yahweh, the God of Israel, he says, this golden calf is your God. This is Yahweh. This is the God that brought you out. Of Egypt. It's a little bit like having an affair on your wedding night. Moses is on the mountain meeting with God, receiving the covenant testimony, the Ten Commandments for God's people, that God would bless them, that, he would, that they would be under his covenant care. 
And yet in that very moment, they are committing adultery with a foreign God and saying, this thing which they made themselves delivered them out of Egypt. Now, it's ridiculous when you look at it, but actually I want to tell you today that we, you and I today, many thousands of years later are just as good at making idols in our hearts, carving out little substitutes for God. Jesus talks about this in the New Testament. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, he says this, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So we see that actually it's not just little carved idols that people might worship as their idolatry. It's even money. Now, uh, that word money in our text actually comes from the word mammos, meaning uh, in Latin is mammon, which is the idea of wealth or riches or materialism. It is very easy for us to fall in love with material things rather than God. Why? Because we can see them. They're easy to serve, to give our lives to. You know, it might be our jobs and what we get from our work, literally the wealth that we amass from our work we live and serve for. You notice because we give too much time to it, our lives are burdened by many things. We're busy, we're tired, we're overcome. What is the root cause of that? It's often just our own idolatry. We're substituting these things for God. We think, I'll get my joy from having more money in the bank account. I'll get my joy from having a slightly better house than I had before or a bigger superannuation balance because I know that I'll be looked after in my future. But we should be getting our joy from God. That's the primary place of our joy. It should be. And yet it seems if we're honest with our hearts, and this is the doctor, remember, giving you the bad news, he's saying you're actually getting this from other places. You're making substitutes in your heart for God. You're not going to him for this. So Jesus shows us that materialism itself is idolatry. One of the uh, other revelations, the, the, the bad news in our text, is that we are very susceptible to this. Not only is it kind of everywhere, but we are very susceptible to it. It's almost like a snare. I was... Uh, I tend to drive when I have to do on long trips with my kids. I put on audio books. I don't know if you do that. Great idea. Get through all the classics. We're going through Roald Dahl. Uh, so we did Danny, Champion of the World, just recently. Fantastic book. And um, just very short synopsis. Um, Danny and his dad sort of become best friends. Danny's mum died when he, uh, when he was very young. And so uh, Danny's dad is a mechanic, but Danny finds out that his dad secretly goes out poaching pheasants in the night. That's his sort of secret that he's been holding. And so eventually, Danny and his dad go out and begin to poach pheasants together. And they come up with this ingenious plan because they've worked out that pheasants are addicted to raisins. And if you want to go out hunting pheasants after this, go for it. But they've worked out that if you really want to catch pheasants, because these pheasants are on the farm of a very rich man in his um, wood near his farm, and so they have to sneak in at night and catch them. Uh, They have to feed them these raisins. They decided the best way to do it is to fill raisins very carefully with sleeping tablets. So then the the pheasants will go and eat all the raisins and then they'll go up and roost in the night and then half an hour later they'll drop out. Because pheasants love raisins. They are snared 
by their appetite for raisins. And you and I are snared by our appetite for idols. Our text, let me say this again, says, remember this and never forget. Later on in verse 12, it says, they have turned away quickly. Later on, it talks about their rebellion. But notice the way Moses is speaking. He's not saying them. What's he saying? You. It was 40 years ago. How would you feel if someone came in here this morning and started blaming you for something that happened 40 years ago? You'd be like, wasn't me. I wasn't there. I was too young. What has Moses picked up on? Same heart. He knows the heart of human beings. God knows our hearts. And so as he's preaching this sermon, calling God's people to repentance, calling them to not get caught up in idolatry, Moses remembers it very well, but he knows his own heart because you know what? Moses fell to this too. Moses isn't going to enter the promised land. He knows he's a sinner just as much as everybody else. This generation, in Deuteronomy, 40 years later, after the event, and this generation today is just as susceptible. Moses says to us, you, you ought take very close pay very close attention to this. So idolatry is dangerous. We're susceptible to it. It's really everywhere. I might dig into that a little bit later. But idolatry is also dangerous. I'm actually sung about this before because of the justice of God. I want to pick this up from the New Testament again, 1 Corinthians 10. This is what it says. It says, Now these things, speaking of this golden calf moment, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. That is, those that worship the golden calf got involved in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did and in one day 23,000 of them died. Again, if we go back to uh, Exodus 32 to 34, we see that what did Israel do as soon as they gave themselves over to worshipping some, a substitute, uh, an idol instead of God? They got almost immediately involved in sexual immorality. Now, uh, there were various forms of worship of idols in uh, the pagan ancient Near East, and one of those was sexual immorality, like licentious behaviour. And that is exactly what Israel did And that, again, is one of the major idols the Bible points out to us. Sexual immorality and materialism. They are the things that capture our hearts. They're the things that we're often living for, sometimes even not exactly consciously, but they're sure are the sins that come up when it comes time for confession. Are they not? And maybe they should be if they're not. The Bible reveals to us that uh, our sins are ultimately a vertical issue. Yes, we sin against each other. Yes, we uh, commit sexual immorality against each other. Yes, we're greedy. Yes, we tend to value our possessions or our wealth more than our relationships with other people. But ultimately, these things are only sins because they're categorically sins because God has given us a law that says this is not good. 
This is not good for you. And this breaks your relationship with him. We must be aware of these. We must be aware and never forget. Now, I just want to briefly uh, go to a quick point of application for parents in the room. Parents in the room. This is incredibly important in terms of dealing with idolatry for passing on the faith to the next generation. So the parents of the room, I speak to myself as well here today, that the quality of your faith is what your children see in your life. The quality of your faith is what your children see in your life. If Jesus is not number one, if you have substitutes for him constantly, if work keeps getting in the way of church, that's actually sometimes that's a good way. If it's a consistent long-term pattern, that's a good way to identify an idol. Or if you can't give financially to your church, that is also a good way to say, hey, I value other luxuries unless you're destitute. And some people, and that's okay, because actually the church should be caring for you if you're destitute or if you're, you're down on your luck at the moment. But most of us are fairly middle class. Right? I didn't take a good look at the cars in the car park, but if I did, I would tell you most of you are middle class, which means we have money to spend on luxuries. And yet when we prefer to spend it on our luxuries rather than giving to God and honouring him with our finances, it is a good indicator of idolatry. And I can say this to you because I'm not the pastor of this church, so talk to Nick afterwards if you've got problems with that. Um, seriously, let's be honest here. And I'm just talking about money. What about sexual immorality? I mean, like, what do you do at night? What do you think about? These things come out of when there's a substitute for God. How much effort do you put into your appearance? Is it because you love God? Or is it because you want attention from other people? This is true for married and unmarried people. God wants to do a bit of heart surgery on us today. He wants to reveal what's really going on on the inside and he wants us to pass on genuine faith to our children. Deuteronomy chapter 6 just goes on about how important it is to pass on the faith to the next generation. Parents, grandparents, the quality of your faith is what your children and your grandchildren will look at. Not not the quality of kids' church, Though that's important, and be part of a community of faith is really important. That's how we stay tight on God. That's how we stick close to Jesus. But if you want, to, if you want your children and grandchildren to hold on to the faith, don't go looking to other people to sort it out. Jesus wants to do a work in you first. Another quick uh, application is that Jesus and Paul put their fingers on these two things, materialism and sexual immorality, as two primary sins of idolatry in the heart. And Jesus says you can't love God and money. And Paul would say you can't love God and sexual immorality. You can't do both. The heart doesn't divide like that. You're either loving one and not loving the other, which means whatever's going on in your thought life, whatever's going on in your heart life, God is actually calling us to a vibrant faith. That's really the point of this book of Deuteronomy some truth-telling, some heart surgery, a vibrant faith where we are repentant people. Martin Luther said the Christian life is repentance. 
It's not just turning up to religious gatherings and pretending everything's good. Because yeah, and, and I've, I've heard a lot of honesty this morning, which has been really good. But it is actually having a real relationship with God. One where we're actually bringing ourselves to Him as we are. Remember Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Is that not true for the already Christian as well as the not yet Christian? I'll let you think about that. That's the bad news. Let's get to the good news. So doctor surgery. We're in there. The doctor's given us the bad news. And, and for some of us, we've been in a doctor's surgery and gotten bad news before. We know what that feels like. It's hard. It's heavy. I've got to tell you, when I became a Christian, it's only when the bad news settled in, I thought, oh, there's a problem here. Because I'd grown up around church. I kind of knew the, the story of Christianity, or at least I thought I did. But when I realised that God was on this side and I was on that side... I thought, uh oh, there's business here that needs to happen because I realised I didn't have him. And you know the Holy Spirit is at work when you come under conviction. So what is the good news? The good news actually begins with God's justice. Have a look at our text. Have a look at our text in verse, uh, chapter 9, verses 18 to 19. This is uh, Moses talking about uh, what he got up to. It says, Then once again I fell prostrate before the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. I ate no bread and drank no water because of all the sin that you had committed, doing evil in the Lord's sight and so provoking him to anger. I feared the anger and wrath of the Lord for he was angry enough with you to destroy you. But again, the Lord listened to me. God is a God who deals with sin. That's really obvious. Uh, that's obvious throughout the New Testament. Pretty much everyone knows that when they think of Christianity, God deals with sin. There are ways to manipulate the Bible and avoid that, but let's take it as the text tells it. Let's have another, have another look at God's justice though. Why don't you flip over with me to chapter 10, verses 17 to 19. And it says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great God, the mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He has integrity, in other words. Verse 18. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner, giving him food and clothing. And it goes on, talking about God's what? Justice. Initially, we see his vertical justice. And that makes us a little bit uncomfortable. But then we see his horizontal justice. And I think, wow. God cares about the vulnerable. God cares about... the. Uh, the, the, the trio of the vulnerable here, you know, the foreigner or the refugee, you know, the fatherless, the orphan, the foster child, you know, the widow, those who are most marginalised. God loves and cares for them. He's talking about his own heart, his justice in the world. It's saying he takes no bribe. He's a God of integrity. You can't buy him off by making offerings to him like the other gods. He is no substitute. He is the real deal and it cuts both Ways. If you want a God who loves horizontal justice, he is on about vertical justice too. Why? And why, let me ask you another question. Why does the vertical justice, that is God's wrath upon sin, make us so uncomfortable? Because we are materialistic. We tend only to think about the horizontal. We just think if I'm not hurting someone else, it's probably okay. If I'm not doing something that offends someone else, it's probably okay. 
that is an entirely materialistic, horizontal way to think. When you think of yourself as a Christian, you're thinking, God is, should be number one. What's the first commandment? You should have no other gods before me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. If God is number one, then his attitude towards you, you should care about the most. But we are extremely bothered by God's justice for sin and yet we want his justice for how we treat one another. That doesn't go together. You either get God or you make yourself a substitute. And when we make substitutes for God, we diminish him. We become comfortable with particular sins, particularly materialism, sexual immorality, pornography addiction, you know, the whatever's going on in our mind, even uh, young couples living together before they get married, those kinds of things, which are very commonplace, normal in our society, extremely normal, but they were normal then in the other nations. And God is saying, don't be like the other nations. Don't make idols for yourself. Don't make substitutes for God. Care primarily about what God thinks. Now, how is this God's good news? Well, let me say this. The great experiment in the secular West is that we can have no wrath for sin, but justice for the people. The problem is that when we, we have no basis for justice horizontally in, in our world, in our society, if we don't have God's objective law. There has been a pattern of the, of the marginal, further marginalisation of the vulnerable in our society. And these go uh, almost in order. So just in the past two years in South Australia, abortion, euthanasia, prostitution, all legalised or extended to various degrees. These are the most vulnerable people in our society and yet we are encouraging or diminishing people's value in many and varied ways. Why? Because we have lost our anchor to God's word. And so this experiment in the secular West means that if you throw out the Bible, you eventually throw out justice. It'll take another generation, I think, for it to happen more. But we are seeing it happen in our day and age. The good news is that we have a God who is of justice. We have a God who cares about vulnerable people, but he has, there is a reason for it. It's not just this is what we believe. It's that this is who God is. Even more so, the work of Jesus Christ shows God's commitment to justice. The Bible tells us that only the death of the Son of God was sufficient to pay for our sins, to pay the just penalty for our rebellion. That is, Jesus cares so much about the danger of sin that he went to the cross for us. You know, we tend to look again at the Old Testament and we think God is harsh at times, but he is careful because he knows that sin is deadly and it's infectious. And if you like a cancer, if you don't cut it out, if you don't take radical action, what's going to happen? It'll metastasize, it'll spread, and you'll be dead. And maybe not just your generation, but your children and your children's children. We must take these things seriously. And Jesus does. That is the good news. Jesus takes this so seriously that he was like, I'll take it. I'll take the just penalty for sin on your behalf. I will do that to change your hearts and your minds, to set them on me rather than to set them on idols. 
What's the most motivating thing in the world? If someone would lay down their life for you and you know it, you believe that he died for me. When that sinks in, then you're motivated to do it because you want to, not because you feel obligated to. This is the great reversal of idolatry. Rather than us substituting something for God, Jesus would substitute himself for us. That's who this God is. This God who proclaims himself as a God of justice says, I will substitute myself as God. Jesus on the cross is God to take the just penalty for our sin. If we choose rebellion against God, God gives it to us. C.S. Lewis said that it's very simple when it comes to our uh, rebellion against God. God will honour our choices. He'll honour our choices in this life and into the next. What else about God's good news? We actually see in this text God's covenant commitment. So again, have a look with me. Uh, Chapter 9, verses 27 to 29. In this text, uh, we see that God is utterly committed, utterly committed to upholding his covenant commitment to the people of Israel. Moses intercedes. He says this starting in verse 26, O sovereign Lord, do not destroy your people, your own inheritance that you redeemed by your great power and brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. What is Moses appealing to? He's not appealing to Israel's righteousness. Moses is appealing to God's own heart for his people. God loves them. Yes, he's a God of justice, but he is a God of covenant faithfulness. And what triumphs? Yes, he cuts out like a surgeon, a skillful surgeon, the cancerous root of sin and idolatry in Israel. But he pours out his love on them so much more abundantly. To the one who committed adultery on the wedding night, he would extend his arms of grace to them. This God is a God who is faithful to his promises. When Moses calls upon the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, he's calling upon the covenant that was made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, that this would be God's holy and chosen people, that through them there would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. We know as we come later into the Bible that that promise actually speaks of Jesus ultimately, but at this point it speaks of Israel. God will keep his covenant promises to his people. But notice, notice there is a need for someone to stand in the gap. There's a need for a mediator. God's justice is aroused by people's sin. And yet there is a need for someone to stand in the gap and say, but what about your mercy? What about your love for your people? This is how God operates. Moses, actually Aaron was supposed to be that. He was the high priest. He he fell into idolatry too because of peer pressure. Moses became that, but even Moses fell to idolatry himself and sin and couldn't enter the promised land, though he was almost looking at it when he's preaching the book of Deuteronomy. And so we need a greater mediator. We need someone who will call upon God in his fullness of nature, his mercy and his justice, his covenant faithfulness. Who will do that? We also see in our text that God is always ready to forgive the sins of his people. One of the Bible verses I teach my kids, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What does that say? It is immediate. 
One of the beautiful verses I, I love in, I think it's Mark's Gospel, Jesus has a, a leper come up to him and the leper says, if you will, you can cleanse me. And Jesus says, I will be clean. God is willing to immediately, immediately cleanse us from our sins, to forgive us. As we are repentant people, He will open up His heart to us, fullness. He's already poured it out. What more evidence do we need than a cross? And yet He wants us to have an alive relationship with Him. The good news is that God is a God of justice and we see it, His commitment to it in Jesus. And God is a God of covenant faithfulness and we also see that commitment to us in Jesus. All right. I've told you the bad news in the doctor's surgery, that there's a problem. There's a cancer. It's got to be cut out. I've told you the good news, that Jesus is willing to cut it out. He's willing to pay the penalty for our sins, but he wants us to have a real live relationship with him, not a relationship of transaction, a substitute where we sort of make offerings to God of our good works or our good deeds in our lives, but one that is real and concrete. But as you step out of the doctor's surgery, and physicians actually know this, what are you going to do about it is the most important thing. Right? You can know the bad, you can know the diagnosis. You can even know the treatment plan. But what are you going to do about it? What is God going to do in your life and how are you going to respond to it? So you've stepped out of the doctor's surgery. And Jesus is before you. Jesus stands there as the great physician and says, I have not come to call sinners. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Those who are healthy have no need of a doctor, but the sick do. You can't come to God in your church clothes and presenting yourself at your best because God knows it's not true. We can only come to Jesus as sinners. And he says, come to me all who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Notice the constant invitations of Jesus to come, to come. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, nobody can die for you. Nobody can have faith for you. You must come to Jesus yourself. He was doing this in the con- it was preaching this in the context of the Roman Catholic Church, which there was always another mediator, always another substitute, whether it was the Virgin Mary or another saint or a priest or someone else. There's always someone else that you needed to go through to get to Jesus. But no one can have faith for you. No one can die for you. You must come to Jesus yourself. And our text tells us, it welcomes us in. It invites us to consider him. Ten, uh, chapter 10 and verse 15, it says, Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants above all nations, as it is today. God is saying he has set his heart in love upon you. Why would the God of heaven... Be willing to forgive sins, except that he loves us. Why would the God of heaven not just pour out his justice immediately upon all people, except that he loves his creation? He cares so deeply about us. He wants us to know him. And yet, why don't we accept it? Why aren't we living a really transformed life all of the time? Why why are idols so powerful for us? I want to put to you that we are often 
thinking of God as a substitute. We are often thinking of him as someone other than what he is. Either a God who's all justice and no mercy. And so we just think, if I just obey the rules more, I'll feel better about myself. But we never go to Jesus. Or we think of God just as a God of mercy, but not of justice. And so we're always diminishing and pushing down sin and reaping the consequences of it. And yet we need to meet the real Jesus. In the book uh, by C.S. Lewis, The Horse and His Boy, it's, one, it's my favourite uh, book in the, in the Narnia Chronicles. And the reason is because uh, this boy Shasta, who uh, was an orphan, he was picked up by a man, uh, treated him very badly as his foster father. He escapes and goes on this amazing journey. But he feels like his life has just gone from one bad turn to another. There's lions chasing him all the time and various adventures that he's going on, but he's quite depressed about it. He ends up in the dark, he can't see anything, and he feels a presence near him and someone breathing. And this is what it says. It says, Once more he felt the warm breath of the thing on his hand and face. There it said, That is not the breath of a ghost. Tell me your sorrows. Shasta was a little reassured by the breath, so he told he had never known his real father or mother and had been brought up sternly by the fisherman. Then he told the story of his escape and how they were chased by lions and forced to swim for their lives and all of their dangers in Tashban and about his night among the tombs and about how the beasts howled at him out of the desert. And he told about the heat and thirst of the desert journey and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and wounded Aravis. And also how very long it was since he had had anything to eat. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta. There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you there were at least two the first night and there was only one, but he was swift of foot. Once more he felt the warm breath of the thing on his hand and face. There, it said, that is not the breath of a ghost. He says, there was only one lion. What on earth do you mean? There was only one lion and it was me. You see, the point in our text in this story that C.S. Lewis tells about the horse and his boy is that Shasta was always convinced that the lions are out to get him. And yet the lion is telling him that he was always caring for him. He was caring for him in various ways. He protected him from wild animals. He cared for him in the desert. He was this miniature, turned into a miniature cat from his lion-sized uh, proportions. Uh, he even wounded one of his friends to, to protect her as well. This lion was misunderstood by Shasta and he was angry and afraid at him. But he didn't realise that all along he was the one who was looking after him. And that is a lot like us. We avoid God because we think of him wrongly. We make a substitute out of him. What Shasta didn't know is that there was an ancient lion in the lion, the witch in the wardrobe who laid down his life for another called Edmund. And the Bible tells us that we have a God who laid down his life for us, that by his stripes we are healed. And he doesn't want us to believe in a false substitute. He wants us to believe in him. I'm going to invite the band to come up. I want you to close your eyes with me. I'm going to pray for you. And I want you just to consider how important it is that Jesus would do this work for you personally. Not someone else in the room today, but for you personally. I want you to consider that 
as Jesus has done this work, paying for your sin, he wants to free you from the shackles of idols. Let me pray. Our Father and the Lord Jesus, we remember now, we remember this morning that you are the true God and there is no other. You are a God of justice and you are a God of covenant faithfulness. You've shown us that on the cross. You've shown us your power and your mercy. But Lord, we need to get it. We need to live a real life of repentance before you. When materialism and sexual immorality do not control us, we pass on the faith to our children. And so Lord, today, I ask that you would come to us in our hearts and remind us that this is not just good news done for someone else, it is good news for us today. Holy Spirit, come. Come and show us that you, Lord Jesus, have taken away our sins. Lord, if we haven't spoken to you honestly for a long time, remind us of your invitation to come. Let us bring everything before you today. Remember that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We give you thanks today in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.